Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In January of 2020, Bloomberg City Lab published an article about a new study from Pittsburgh researchers naming the best and worst cities for Black women. Among cities with at least 100,000 Black women, Cleveland came in dead last in terms of livability. In this city with a nearly 50% Black population, this news drops like a bomb. And reactions were mixed. Do you think Cleveland is really the worst for Black women? And what do you say? Uh, I say... It depends on the person uh, I ask. When I dropped it in one of my Black girl group chats, the emojis were just eye rolls. I'm not surprised. Not even a little. It's, it's heartbreaking and also embarrassing. Is it like this everywhere? Is it me? <laughs> like This city will make or break you. City of Black women that are looking around at their outcomes, their future, their past, and saying, this city makes me anxious. If anybody's out there listening in Cleveland, please get out. On Living for We, we talk to Cleveland's Black women from all walks of life, from the CEO of one of our major healthcare systems to self-starting entrepreneurs, judges, lawyers, doctors, artists, students, and mothers who've experienced loss. We share stories from these women as change makers and architects of their own futures, celebrating their victories, challenges, and personal growth along the way. So is it really true what they say? Is Cleveland deserving of the least livable title? And what can we do to make lasting improvements for Black women in our city? I'm Marlene Harris-Taylor, and this is Living for We, a project of connecting the dots between race and health from IdeaStream Public Media. This is a Channel 43 news break. Good evening, I'm Ramona Robinson. Here's a look at some of the stories we're working on tonight for the 10 o'clock news. Ramona Robinson, weeknights on Channel 3 News. And I'm Ramona Robinson. Since our exclusive report... Everyone in Cleveland knows Ramona Robinson, or at least they feel like they do. She's a trailblazer, the first black woman to host a nightly news show in Northeast Ohio. And generations of Clevelanders grew up with her in their living rooms. Now, Ramona, I have to tell you, you're making me feel bad. How? Why? Because you just look impeccable and flawless <laughs> as usual. Well, I decided to clean up just for you, Marlene. Trust me, I'm not walking around looking like this every day. <laughs> Well, I decided to put some clothes on and get out of the sweats and look presentable just for your podcast. <laughs> Ramona has had a storied career, winning eight Emmys over 30 years. She stepped away from local TV news in 2019, but she's still recognized everywhere, just as statuesque and beautiful as she is accomplished. Believe it or not, Marlene, I have run out of this house with a ponytail, sunglasses, no makeup, and inevitably someone will say, are you Ramona Robinson? <laughs> Ramona is now an author of three books. Her latest is Poor Girl, Rich Life, Discover His Plan to Prosper You. She spends most of her time now traveling and sharing stories about her life through her books. And who better to kick off our two-episode conversation about Black women in the workplace than Ramona, a woman who went to work on our TVs every single day. 
On this episode of Living for We, we're talking about the workplace experiences of women who've achieved visibly great heights in their chosen fields and about what they had to do to get there. Even Ramona, everyone's favorite nightly news host, faced some challenges when she arrived in Cleveland. So, Ramona, when you got to Cleveland in the 80s, right? Yep, 88. 88, and you came in with great fanfare, and you came in as the first Black woman to anchor an evening newscast. And I was so excited, so elated that I would make history. Uh, First of all, I couldn't believe it because it was 1988. I was like, Cleveland, you're behind the time. (laughs) I was so excited. And I thought the entire city was excited because I was in every newspaper. I was on every radio station. And even before I went on the air, I was just being celebrated. And then, you know, a few days before Channel 43's 10 o'clock news went on the air, I started receiving these letters and I could not believe my eyes. I'll never forget the first letter I received. And it was postmarked Akron. And, and the first letter said, you know, Cleveland has beautiful white anchors. We don't need N anchors like you. Go back where you came from. And they used the N word. And my heart just sank, you know, because I grew up in rural red Missouri. And I never heard the N word. I mean, I I grew up around a lot of people who described themselves as racist. And so to see that, and then subsequently I would get more letters and pictures that they would cut out of monkeys and gorillas. And and it, w- it was just horrible. And every time I would get one, I would cry. And I would, every time I'd get a letter, my news director said, bring them in to him. He always knew when I had one of those white envelopes and he'd hand me a box of tissues because he knew it was going to be a cry fest. Because you have to remember, I was so young. I was in my 20s and I was so far away from home. I didn't know anybody here. I would just cry and go, why don't they like me? Why? And so I was just like, you know, took it to the Lord. Lord, what should I do? And Lord, why have you landed me here? You know of all of my sisters, because there are 10 girls in my family. Of all of them, Marlene, I am the crybaby. Why have you given <laughs> me this job? <laughs> but Ramona, were you scared? I would have been scared. I was terrified. I would go on the air. People would write to me and say, you know, you're doing a good job, but you kind of look terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) I had to like grow some and say, "Uh uh-uh. I have worked much too hard. You know, that that strong black woman that my mom raised me to be kicked in. I said, I have worked too hard to get here. I am not going to let anyone take this away from me. And as soon as I said that, Marlene, bells went off and God would open up the windows of heaven and pour me out a blessing that I would not have room enough to receive it because literally, the next couple of days, I received just an outpouring of support. Some Polish folks in Parma invited me to the Polish hall, and I danced the polka with 80-year-olds. A Jewish boy who had a crush on me invited me to his bar mitzvah, and so many people and from so many diverse cultures just wrapped their arms around me and embraced me and showed me that there was so much love in this city. 
Ramona says she's happy she endured, but that was not the end of her challenges. I found out that the women were being paid a lot less than the male anchors. And once I found this out, I thought, mm-mm, not going to sit well with me, not going to happen. And so I was uh, complaining to my agent at the time, and he was, you know, trying to calm me down, saying, Ramona, that's just how it is. Hmm. Male anchors in Cleveland are considered king, and that's how it's always been. That's how it's going to be. What they're offering you in this new contract, I think you should sign. Um, Trust me, this is a lot of money for someone like you. And I was like, uh, I am doing the same work as the male anchors across the street. And my ratings now are better than theirs. I have soared to number one in the city and I'm going to be paid less than them. And that's not going to happen. And so I ended up getting rid of him. And it was the scariest thing that I've done, Marlene, but I had to trust in the Lord. And and it was so frightening because I had a lot of responsibilities, not just taking care of myself, but my where my mom lived had become unsafe. Um, you know, drug dealers had started to move in. And so I needed to move her out of, you know, that place. And um, my my girlfriend was living in a drug-infested area, and she, I was helping her to send her kids to a private school and just a, a, a number of responsibilities, helping my, my siblings go to college. And I felt like the weight of the world was on me. And so I, I said, no, this is not going to happen anymore. I am not going to accept a lower pay because I am afraid. So what you're saying, though, it sounds to me like you're not surprised that Cleveland was labeled least livable for Black women. I guess, uh, no, I wasn't because it was, it's so hard for us. You know, women in general make anywhere from, you know, 62 to 67%. I think in some areas, maybe uh, white women are at 70% to every dollar a, a man makes and uh, Black women maybe 67 cents to every dollar a man. So I'm I'm not surprised at all, especially here in Cleveland. I think women, we have to speak up. We have to stop being afraid and we have to stop staying in dead-end jobs where they're not treating us well, thinking, oh, well, the grass is probably not greener on the other side. Well, maybe it, it isn't. Or maybe it is, but we'll never know if we stay in the same job 10, 20 years with people mistreating us and not valuing us. You are worthy. So, you know, this study said that Cleveland is the least livable city for Black women. So what's that answer for Ramona? Has Cleveland been the worst city for you as a Black woman? Oh, definitely not. Uh I'm almost speechless because for me, Cleveland has just been the best part of me. I I literally feel like I became a woman in this city. I was a girl when I came here in my 20s, and now I'm a grown woman. But I know that I have lived a great life for the most part in this city for a lot of Black women their story is not like Ramona Robinson's. Their story can be one of hardship. I understand how hard it is when you you try and you try and, and maybe you get a couple of steps 
forward and then you knock back. <laughs> I just say, you know, keep going. Don't stop. You can make it. There is hope. That's the one thing I always have, hope and faith. You just can't give up. That's the one thing I never do. When I want something, I never give up. I always believe in a better day. And even if I do have those days when I worry a little bit, I just, I let it go. And I find a way to fight. You know, I believe in my Lord and Savior. And so that's what gets me through. And I believe there's hope in this city. I believe those dire numbers that we see, I know we can change them. But it's going to take all of us. It's going to take all of us to care. Chi-Chi and Bethany of Enlightened Solutions, our friends and reoccurring experts, dedicated an entire chunk of their Project Noir research to the issues Black women face at work. Income inequality for Black women was one of the reasons Cleveland landed at the bottom of the list of the Pittsburgh study. Chi-Chi and Bethany's research found that 76% of Black women said they were paid less than co-workers in similar roles. 77% have been subjected to inappropriate comments about their appearance. And 81% have been placed on a team with no other Black employees. And these are just a few examples of what they heard from Black women about the problems in their work lives. This pressure to be perfectly quaffed. The makeup has to be fierce. You have to look wonderful from head to toe. Let's talk about that a little bit. When we have an archetype of Black women of being the strong Black woman, she is not an individual who's disheveled. She is not an individual that has a hair out of place. Every single baby hair is laid on that forehead. <laughs> <laughs> Every single um, hair is perfectly positioned. You are supposed to look like someone who has overcome everything. Pressure that Black women have and this anxiety around it, because not only are you going to be pressured by dominant society, but you're also going to be peer pressured by your friends, your uh, family, your uh -huh. social network. Because if you walk into a room and you're like, ooh, Lisa's hair is a little busted. She's in between hair appointments. Folks are going to talk about it. And then position all of those negative attributes onto not only your race, but also your gender as well. It cuts both ways too. some feedback that Chi Chi and I have gotten mm. and that we see other people getting is that you're too polished. Hmm. Uh, we can't tell that you need help. We can't tell when you're having a bad time or a bad day because you don't show us. If you show them, it's like piranhas. People see weakness and then they start saying, well, do you really think that she's able to do this? Is she up to the task? Is it this or that? So at the end of the day, you're expected to be perfect, even whenever you're feeling very imperfect, even when you're feeling like you need a lot of help. You, you know, I actually had a manager say that to me. Yep. <laughs> she yep. said, Marlene, I can never tell when you're stressed because you just seem to just be able to handle things. And, and this was like said in a pejorative way. Right. Of course. Yeah, that's how we get it, too. You're so perfect that I'm mad at you for being this perfect. Mm -hmm, right, right. And on top of it, if you weren't perfect, I would exit you from this complete <laughs> position, which is why Black women have to have these really complex internal lives, which is why we have our sister circles, our group chats, our online spaces, because we can't always trust the folks that are in front of us to be able to care for us in the way that we are expected to care for everybody else's emotions. 
Being the only black woman in the workplace can be deeply isolating, especially in white collar jobs. I mean, they're literally called white collar. That's also true for women in male dominated fields. Our next guest, Ariane Kirkpatrick, is working to change that. She's a force. She's small but mighty, a businesswoman and entrepreneur who's received accolades from business groups and praise in local and national magazines. She started many businesses over the years, but currently owns a commercial construction company, the AK-18. She's also the founder of Harvest of Ohio, a medical marijuana dispensary and grow site. The AKA team has undertaken massive projects throughout Northeast Ohio, including for the Cleveland Clinic, the Flats East Bank, the Cleveland Museum of Art, and several suburban school systems. She's grown her business in male-dominated spaces and succeeded. We're just really trying to grow something really big, something really impactful, something for the community. That was always my dream in the beginning. And I have stayed true to my vision. I wanted to make sure that minorities had the opportunity to get into a construction field, something that we weren't really allowed to be in. And I I just can't tell you how proud I am that I've been able to accomplish that goal because you just don't see it. So I and I don't, and you should mm -mm. be very proud. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm. Last week, I cried. For Women's History Month, I said, let's go to a construction site. Let's do a photo shoot. Then let's take all the women out and let's just fellowship and have a good time. 103 employees I have. 25 of those were women, black women. Our shirts that were with Rosie the Riveter. Our Rosie the Riveter <laughs> is, bla- is, is a brown Rosie. All right, Rosie. With success, however, you always have the haters. For years, she's had to contend with people thinking that she can't be achieving all this success on her own or that she's honestly beating out men for contracts. I try my best to be successful, strong construction company. And one day, an email came across from a community activist, three, four, four hundred people sent this email to, and it says, congratulations to the front of the year. Arian Kirkpatrick at AKA Construction Management Team. And I'm like, wow. What Arian is talking about here is that for years, the state government and some businesses have carved out a small number of contracts that they call minority set-asides. But in some cases, white companies use a workaround where they hire minority contractors or businesses to be a front to make it appear their company is owned by a minority, when in fact, the contracts really go to white-owned businesses. Arian says it hurt even more because her biggest critic, the one accusing her of being a front, was a black man. So that was a huge insult Girl. for him to call you a front. Girl. Yes. And so my guys in the second, they couldn't understand. Arian, why, you, why are you upset? You know who you are. But the, the basis of it was, you hurt me. You hurt my family. You hurt the, the, the people and folks that work for me. You took the pride of my company. You made me unhealthy. And, and so, and that was so many years ago, and I still can't get away from that pain. You know, I, I hear the pain. I feel the pain. 
that's so, about, so you're supposed you to just blow it off and, just and, blow and it not off, yeah. worry about it mm-hmm. and just let it roll off your back. Yeah. And we're always supposed to just let it roll off exactly. our back, right? And that's what we do as black women. We just like, let it roll off our back. But, bruh, I want you to come say sorry to me. I want you to apologize. And as she expanded from construction to the lucrative marijuana industry in Ohio, new haters came out of the woodwork. Arian says she is the only Black woman in Ohio who was awarded a contract from the state to open a medical marijuana dispensary and grow site. There were a limited number of contracts awarded by the state, and Arian says some people were not happy that her company came out on top. November 30th, 2017, we won our license, and I did not put it on Facebook or I didn't put it on anything because while my son said they were doing a minority set-aside, Arian from the 60s knew it was going to be an issue. Your gut, your gut was telling you. My gut told me. On December 2nd, 2017 was when the first negative stories came out. Who is she? Who is she? Some of them had the audacity to call me and say, hey, don't take this personal business as business. Or, I mean, strange calls. Um, we want to make sure you want to get out of this business. I mean, just threatening. Threatening weird. calls? Oh, yeah. It was amazing. It was like, it was, it was, when I talk about the like dark so, like, so like you pick up the phone and yeah. there's somebody saying, you need to think about getting out of the mm-hmm. marijuana business. Yes. Yes. Wow. My little black power stuff before it didn't prepare me for all this, man. I mean, I was, I I, I literally had dreams or, or feared that people would come into my house and I was there. I was like, what have I done? And I was thinking, what have I done to my family? This is just so crazy. And I'm but holding you, on to saying I'm harboring. some kind of invisible line in some mm-hmm. people's minds where you were getting ready to make too much money. I was that gonna, was the problem. That's the problem. And 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 money, man, it just it just it turns you to something different. <laughs> it was it was just so scary. So, so scary. And there were so many times that I wanted to um just stop. Can't let your guard down because if you let people know that you're weak, oh my gosh. When I had my heart attack, everybody found out like maybe months afterwards. Some people still find out. How many? How long ago was it when you had the heart attack? Last year in July and my first one was eight days um, before my 50th birthday. And I didn't want people to know because it was a form of, it was weakness. I'm, I'm down. This is, this is when they gonna come get me. You thought they were coming in for oh, the kill. They, they're coming in for the kill coming in for the kill. I was How much scared. of a factor was stress in that first heart attack? Big. Like I talked about the brother of, of the front, when those type of things continuously happen to you, it's not healthy for you. Despite her fears, she didn't give up. And by the strength of her own convictions, she's creating life-changing opportunities for Black women and Black people throughout Northeast Ohio. I am very instrumental in making sure that I uplift women in my office once a week. I will have someone in my office that I'm talking, that I'm mentoring, that I'm talking to. 25% of the folks that work at AKA Team are women. That's changing it. And so what I'm doing, I'm going to make sure that my peers that I work with, they see that. Because when you see good things, other people say, well, I want to do that too. You had already been doing this anyway. Mm-hmm. But your reaction to hearing that study was that, you know what, we're not going to march. I'm going to continue to build women up yep. economically. Mm-hmm. And we built them up towards the solution to change that. Yeah. 
We have competitive salaries. We're an employee of choice. We provide health care, life insurance, employee assistance program, educational components. Just because you people say, oh, you know, yeah, but like on you, you're just a mom and pop. No, we're not mom. We, we might be mom and mom and pop in theory. We're mom and pop going to help you cultivate and grow us to make sure that we're part of the economic stability. That's that's the mom and pop with us because these are all my babies, whether they're younger or older than me. In some ways, I understand how you're a little conflicted about it because for you personally, Cleveland is not the worst city. For me personally, it isn't. I just want to be a part of the team that makes a difference here. I, I hate when people just get so named, oh, it's the worst place mm-hmm, to live. Mm-hmm. Well, let's change that. Let's cross the river. Let's cross the bridge. And I'm not just talking about from east to west, but west to east. Let's all come together as one. And the things that can't be fixed, let's come up with a recipe to success. So we could change that. So the next survey that comes out, Cleveland won't be at the bottom exactly. for black women. So all they did was put a challenge in front of me when they did that study, because we're going to change it and we're going to change it together. And we also heard from Ariane this idea that you're a fake, you're mm. a front. There must be somebody else behind this success of yours. Yeah, because it's it's like this. We've laid all of these traps in front of you. We've placed sexist microaggressions in front of you. We have exited you from these professional groups racially. So how in the world, with all of these different things, how could you be successful? Truthfully, the thing that is the most interesting about racism is that it actually reveals more about the dominant group than it does about the the minority. It reveals me as a straight white male. I would not have been able to overcome that. I cannot believe that you've been able to overcome this. So for her, folks are looking at her as a fake or a front or a phony, it's because that individual would have had a fake or a front or a phony. It's projection. It's projection. It's straight projection. And more than that, think about the mental anguish, the emotional anguish, the mental health issues that may arise when you're thinking about yourself and you're saying, wow, am I an imposter? Even if I believe in myself, even if I see all of the certificates on the wall, what are you actually drinking in in the deep, dark moments when you're feeling anxiety? What are the things that actually seep underneath your skin? And what are those things that you may start to believe about your own self? First Steps of Freedom, Jeffrey Ivey just released from jail. He did more than half of a 90-day sentence for not fixing up this property. A judge finally let him out. The case led protesters to call out housing judge Monet Scott. Some career criminals don't get locked up, but Ivy did. I will be working on the house from now until it is complete. You may have heard about this controversial case in local Cleveland politics. But before we get into the details, let's talk about Judge Monet Scott, the judge involved in this case. We talked to her a few months before this story blew up. Judge Scott's story began in her hometown of Atlanta. After her parents' divorce, she moved into public housing with her mom and sisters. You know, being number three of four girls, sometimes your parents reprimand you and you're just like, they're just like, I'm not going to figure this out. Everybody getting punished. Right. Um, And I'm like, I didn't even do anything. I intentionally didn't do anything because I did not want to get. So how do you just lump? You know, I was just like, that's not fair. Going to an elementary school when we moved there, we were discriminated against just because we lived in low income housing. It wasn't a race thing. It was a class thing because everybody there was predominantly black. But I remember the 
teacher reprimanding us that were in the low income housing for wearing lip gloss. Mm. And but the girls who lived in the house with both parents could wear lip gloss. Even at a young age, I'm like, well, that's not right. I remember in third grade, we had to write what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I just remember saying, I want to be somebody that determines fairness. Like, that's the only way I could express it. So when you got to Cleveland, you went to law school, like, what was your plan? When I came out, it was just like, okay, so what do I want to do? And I always wanted to be a prosecutor. I, I always liked law enforcement, but not to be a police officer. Mm-hmm. So I was those like... Those rules, that rule yeah, thing. You like yeah, those rules, girl. I love rules. <laughs> yes. Okay, so someone with a love for rules and fairness, you'd think that would make a perfect candidate for a judicial race, right? But she lost the first race. The second time, she was victorious. But even that was a little bittersweet. You know, what I've noticed is that microaggression. When articles are being written, it is Cleveland Housing Court. They rarely mention my name. You know, I remember you mentioning that to me, and that's really interesting Mm -hmm. that, like, with the prior judge, whenever they talked about the housing court... You knew. It was always his name and then the housing court. Listen, when I won the election, they put his picture in the paper on my win. You're kidding me. And they glowed him up. You're, no, wait a minute. No. Yes. You're making this up. Nope. You can still pull the article up. On the day that you won. Yep. They did not put your picture in there? They didn't put my picture in there, and it was just a blurb. But they talked about the judge leaving. Yeah. And so these little things still happen. Now I'm more limited on who I'll give interviews, because it also takes time away from me doing, being a judge. But it's kind of made you put up this guard, like, okay, you know what? They're not going to treat me fairly. Yep. As she moved into her new role as the first woman of any color elected to serve as housing court judge, she found that it wasn't going to be so easy. Some people just weren't happy that I was there. Who are we getting when we get this? So people just don't like change. Definitely, they don't like change. Mm -hmm. And people weren't happy that I was coming in with my own leadership team. Um, I had people tell me I couldn't do that. And I'm like, you don't tell the mayor. You don't tell the governor. You don't tell anybody who takes this seat. They can't come in with their own leadership team. So why do you think they were trying to tell you that? Mm, you know, because I'm a black woman and, you know, they want comfortability. They want people that's always been there. And I'm like, I don't know these people. And so I want to bring in my own team. Because you have to be comfortable in your workplace. And there was nothing, no rules or anything against you doing that. No. And you changed some things. Oh, I changed a lot. And they didn't like that. So remember Jeffrey Ivey that we told you about earlier? Judge Scott faced huge community backlash when after several appearances in her court, Judge Scott decided that Mr. Ivey was not following the rules. She sentenced him to 90 days in jail. This was unprecedented, according to community activists. This was the first time a housing court judge had ever jailed anyone for this amount of time. Not even slumlords have received this sort of penalty. What can you tell us about the Jeffrey Ivey case? For more than a week, Judge Monet Scott avoided the I-team, but we found her walking into a city council budget hearing. Can you at least tell us how many corporate landlords or slum landlords you've thrown in jail? 
We've been trying to reach you for days. So here's a During the thick of the controversy, she appeared in front of Cleveland City Council for a different issue. She made these comments while community members were heckling her just a few feet away. The courts do not belong to individual judges, administrative or presiding. It belongs to the citizens and taxpayers with limitations. One cannot, should not tell a judge what they think they should do on a matter, expect a judge to talk to them personally about pending matters that are before the bench, tell the current judge what the prior judge allowed, expect immediate interviews about specific non-general pending matters before the court, and expect quick access to personally talk to the judge. Throughout this whole frenzy with Mr. Ivey's sentence, Judge Scott never made a public comment on the case. When we reached out to her and gave her the opportunity to talk about this, she told me that she is, quote, prohibited from saying anything, and thus she is not. This is an active case, in quotes. Mr. Ivey was released from prison after giving Judge Scott a plan detailing how he's going to fix up the property. Uh, and I, uh, any inconvenience that I may have caused anyone, well, I don't know who it would have been, but if there was any inconvenience, I apologize for that. Judge Scott would love it if she got the same kind of media coverage for the positive changes she's made as a judge. Growing up the way she did made her sensitive to people living in precarious housing situations. Some of the changes she's made were aimed at helping those facing evictions. So I had made a decision for the eviction hearings not to be viewed live. Because you can do that with virtual, right? You can go live. You can have people just Zoom in. And so I said, I'm not doing that for evictions because I think people are very vulnerable. This is their lowest times. And I know that there could be somebody who doesn't like you in an apartment building that you're being evicted from. And they'll come on there, they'll screenshot the evidence of the pictures, and they'll say, I'm sitting here watching such and such get evicted out of that and house. And gossiping with it. And gossiping. And sending it around to all their friends. Yep. Sometimes we just want to do stuff different. Or do the right thing. Do the art. That part. <laughs> do the right thing. Do the right thing. What do you think we need to make Cleveland more livable for Black women in particular? I think we need camaraderie. When I became a judge, that I thought was there was that there would be a sisterhood. Black women on the bench is less than maybe 1%. I knew all of the women judges. And I thought that they probably got together and talked to each other and welcomed somebody to the bench and let them know, here's what you need to do to transition. I only came in and found out none of that was in place. And that was kind of bothersome to me. Because I'm like, okay, we all know each other, whether some of us went to school, we worked at prosecutor's office. You know, I, I just was surprised by that. Black women in Cleveland are suffering from a lack of grace from their colleagues, from their healthcare practitioners, the individuals that are educating them. They're not given that grace. That lack of grace has contributed to a lot of Black women kind of falling in between those cracks. I think it's a double-edged sword. You don't ever want to look 
like what you've overcome. What we really want to make sure is that we're not forcing women to have to claw their way up to the top, that we are allowing them a smooth passage, meritocracy, actual meritocracy, as opposed to this idea that you should suffer as a Black woman to get to your next station, that you should be um, grateful for the scraps that you are thrown. In order to be that successful in Cleveland and anywhere as a Black woman, you're going to end up with scars. Sure, everybody faces adversity in their lives, but Black women are facing adversity after adversity after adversity. Now we're looking at them and saying, aren't you grateful? Aren't you grateful that you got so far? Aren't you grateful that you're here? I guess, but I'm beat up along the way. So next time, we continue this conversation about the workplace. And Dr. Angela Neal Barnett, our resident psychologist and therapist, will be back to give Black women strategies for coping at work. Thank you to everyone who continues to leave us voicemails about their experiences as Black women in Cleveland. Here's a message from one of our listeners. Once I got into my collegiate years and especially pursuing a career in STEM, I started to feel more singled out no one around me looked like me anymore. Now, as someone that is working in the professional world, I definitely feel as if there are people that are Caucasian, unconscious of the privilege that they hold. They make sure that people like me, other African-Americans that hold lower professional positions than I, are boxed in. I would definitely like to see this change for the generations that are coming up after me. If you're a Black woman in Cleveland and want to share your thoughts with us directly, our hotline is open. Leave a voicemail at 216-223-8312. That's 216-223-8312. And you may just hear yourself on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. You can find more episodes of Living For We on ideastream.org slash livingforwe and wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, letting us know what you think about Cleveland and what you're interested in hearing us talk about on the show. Living For We is part of the Connecting the Dots Between Race and Health initiative from IdeaStream Public Media, produced by Evergreen Podcasts and made possible by generous support from the Dr. Donald J. Goodman and Ruth Weber Goodman Philanthropic Fund of the Cleveland Foundation. The Living For We team includes myself, Marlene Harris-Taylor, host and executive producer, Hannah Ray Leach, our lead producer, and Hey Fran Hey as producer and creative director. Chichi and Kimra and Bethany Studenik of Enlightened Solutions are our researchers, data analysts, and community partners. We get production help from Stephanie Chekalinski, Original music, including our theme song, is from Cleveland artist Afi Scruggs. Our mix engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. We'll see you soon. <laughs>